What legacy shall we leave our children? Are they destined to die for the hatreds which have plagued the old world? Or are they destined to live because we had the vision to build a new world? There is no reason for us to be enemies. Neither of us seeks the territory of the other. Neither of us seeks domination over the other. Neither of us seeks to stretch out our hands and rule the world. Chairman Mao has written, so many deeds cry out to be done and always urgently. The world rolls on. Time passes. 10,000 years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. This is the hour. This is the day. For our two peoples to rise to the heights of greatness which can build a new and a better world. That was President Nixon on February 21st, 1972, giving a toast to Premier Zhou Enlai of the People's Republic of China at the Great Hall of the People in Peking. Nixon's week that changed the world was a Cold War game changer, establishing rapprochement between the US and China after nearly a quarter century of non-communication. Here with us to talk about the impact of the trip is Ambassador Richard Solomon. As specialist in Chinese politics, Ambassador Solomon joined the National Security Council staff under Dr. Kissinger in 1971. In the Reagan administration, he became Director of Policy Planning at the Department of State and was appointed Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs and Ambassador to the Philippines by President George H.W. Bush. From 1993 till his retirement in 2012, he, is, he served as President of the United States Institute of Peace. He is now a Senior Fellow at the RAND Corporation. Thank you, Ambassador Solomon, for joining us. Pleased to be with you. Let's start the story at the half-century mark. After Chairman Mao's takeover of mainland China, uh, following a civil war against the nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the Republicans in Congress had blamed President Harry Truman and Secretary of State Dean Acheson for, quote, losing China. What was the Truman administration policy? The Truman uh people realized that uh, our ability to really affect the outcome of the Chinese Civil War was, was limited. But uh, the Nationalist Chinese, those supporters uh, in Congress uh, supporting Chiang Kai-shek, felt that uh, not enough had been done to uh, support uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government in the Civil War period. But uh, the Truman administration basically uh, was presented with a fait accompli when uh, the communists won the Civil War, and their attitude initially was to, uh, as uh, Secretary of State Dean Acheson uh, put it, to let the dust settle. That is, we did not initially adopt a, a hostile policy towards uh, the communist regime. We, we were going to let time pass, but uh, Chairman Mao immediately allied uh, communist China to the Soviet Soviet Union and so presented the United States with a profound 
strategic dilemma of uh, facing adversaries at both ends of the Eurasian landmass, which uh, from an American or any defense point of view was decidedly threatening that as you face the two front, a two front challenge. And uh, that was the basic structure of the Cold War confrontation. And part of the uh, achievement of what President Nixon was able to accomplish uh, two and some decades later was to, in effect, uh, break that coalition in America's favor and establish a positive relationship with China to the detriment of uh, the interests of the Soviet Union. Was then Congressman Nixon, do you know, was he among the cr a critic of the of the of the uh, Truman administration, he was uh, decidedly an anti-communist, and it was uh, one of the themes of his uh, efforts uh, to first gain a seat in Congress, uh, and uh, that certainly placed him in a position where he was supportive of uh, the people who were behind the Jiang Kai-shek government. Now, was the, the divide with China, was it further exacerbated by the uh, war in Korea in the early 1950s? Uh, absolutely. The, the war in Korea, which started in June, which was about six months after the Chinese and the Soviets had established their, their alliance, uh, converted what had been a political situation into a military situation. And so the U.S. was in a real dilemma uh, of what to do, facing in one hand Soviet pressures in Europe, and uh, now what seemed to be a war in, in East Asia supported by both the Soviet Union and China. And one would have to say from a Soviet point of view, it was to their benefit to have the United States uh, caught up in a hot war in uh, in East Asia and Korea, which then was reinforced two decades later when we get uh, caught up in the Vietnam quagmire. So again, that was the strategic dilemma that uh, the United States and President Nixon and his predecessors were all facing. And I was going to ask you that how much how much of America's involvement in Vietnam had to do with containing China? Well, the Chinese were uh, promoting what they called proletarian internationalism, and they were very hostile to the United States and uh, generally trying to uh, stir up uh, insurrections in Indonesia and other countries in East Asia quite apart from their alliance with uh, the North Korean regime. So the United States did face the dilemma of, of how to uh, counter that, that pressure. And uh, it all came to a head with the, uh, the war between North and then South Vietnam after the, uh, the French had been driven out in 1954 at the uh, Battle of Dien Bien Phu. So there was a view that uh, unless the United States with allies like South Korea, Japan, and others countered this uh, Chinese pressure, uh, we were going to see destabilization or revolutions throughout East Asia. 
but at the same time, of course, we did face all the Soviet pressures uh, in Europe as well. Fast forwarding a bit to the mid-1960s when the Vietnam War is raging and it's the height of U.S. involvement there, something, something over half a million, uh, escalate to something over half a million troops. Uh, in 1967, Richard Nixon is not in office, um, but he devotes a lot of time to uh, studying foreign affairs and uh, meeting with world leaders. He also writes a seminal article in Foreign Affairs magazine called Asia After Vietnam. And he writes, I quote, taking the long view, we cannot uh, simply afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies and threaten its neighbors. There is no place on the small planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry isolation. But we could, but we could disastrously go wrong if in pursuing this long range goal, we failed in the short range to read the lessons of history. I'll ask this question in two parts. How did President Nixon's thinking on Asia evolve? And, and what does he mean? How could we have failed in the short run of this long-term goal of bringing China to the world? I think you have to begin uh, by seeing that uh, President Nixon uh, had lost the uh, 1960 campaign to Jack uh, Kennedy, uh, was probably our most uh, experienced uh, senior official uh, dealing with world affairs. He had been President Eisenhower's vice president, and I could send Nixon repeatedly on uh, various international missions. So Nixon was well prepared to look at the world in its uh, broader context. And so he was looking at the world in terms of the Soviet Union being a major, if not the primary, security threat uh, to the United States. Uh, in 1967, uh, the article that you just read from uh, was published shortly after Nixon, uh, with his uh, good longtime aide Ray, Ray Price, had traveled through East Asia for several months. Uh, Nixon, in his private capacity in the 60s, was involved in uh, business activities in Asia. Uh, but he was well aware of the strategic uh, activities playing out there. And above all, he saw that <clears throat> President Johnson was entrapped. Indeed, the country was entrapped in the Vietnam conflict. And that conflict, which, of course, had a tremendous negative resonance in the United States, was undermining uh, President Johnson's presidency. And so in 1967, Nixon began thinking about a second run for the presidency. And uh, it's pretty obvious that what he wanted to do was avoid President Johnson's fate, was to see, which was to see his presidency undermined by the conflict in Vietnam. But, but President Nixon, or would-be President Nixon at that point, saw the Vietnam conflict in this broader context. And uh, so he was already thinking about how do we get ourselves out of this entrapment in the Vietnam quagmire where our major strategic issues are dealing with the Soviet Union, the nuclear threat from the Soviets, and the bigger issues associated with Asia, of which Vietnam was not the centerpiece. So, uh, again, he brought to uh, that article, Asia After Vietnam, his, uh, his efforts to think about how you get out of the Vietnam quagmire. And uh, 
deal with the broader strategic threats that the, that the United States face from both the Soviet Union and their then ally, uh, China. By this time, we also see conflict within the communist world. In 1968, uh, Warsaw, uh, troop, Warsaw packed troops and tanks roll into Czechoslovakia and put down a reform movement there. And you also see border clashes between the U.S. and China on the Usuri River border. Uh, why was there a, a fissure in the, in the communist bloc? Was this geopolitical? Was it, was it ideological? It was very much a personal issue between uh, initially uh, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, and Nikita Khrushchev. You've got to walk this back to the uh, mid-50s. Yosef uh, Stalin died in 1954, and a year uh, and a half or so later, Khrushchev, who was Stalin's successor, attacked Stalin uh, for his brutal dictatorship and for his what Khrushchev called uh, Stalin's cult of personality. <clears throat> now, this was highly threatening to Mao. Why? Because Mao had been very supportive of Stalin, and Mao had been developing his own cult of personality in China. So Khrushchev's attack on Stalin and the cult of personality put put Chairman Mao in an awkward position. He did lose some support or was put on the defensive in terms of China's internal politics. So beginning in, in the mid-50s, relations between these two men soured and they continued to deteriorate uh, through that period. Uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, Mao attacked uh, Khrushchev privately for what he called Khrushchev's adventurism, his harebrained schemes uh, of taking on the United States in the way he did through the, the missiles in Cuba. And then uh, the relationship, which had been very much uh, this personal political conflict, uh, increasingly trans translated into a military confrontation. The Russians actually in 19... Uh, 63 had approached the United States about maybe a cooperative effort to attack China's nuclear facilities uh, before they got the A-bomb, which they got in 1964. Uh, that notion disappeared after uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. But then, as you, you mentioned, in 1967, the Soviets uh, under Brezhnev sent troops into Czechoslovakia and were taking a very aggressive approach to uh, their their influence in other other communist countries, particularly in East Asia. And Brezhnev gave a speech where he talked about the limited sovereignty of these so-called socialist or communist countries, and the in effect claim, claiming the the right of the Soviet Union as the leading communist state to. Uh, intrude in their internal politics. So this became not just a political, but increasingly a military threat uh, to China. That threat became real in 1969 when, as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, the Soviet Union, which was amassing troops on China's northern border, uh, uh, led to some some border clashes with the Chinese. So this 
relationship that in 1950 had begun as a strategic coalition between China and the Soviet Union had now deteriorated to a significant military conf- confrontation. And it was in that context that uh, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, who had been aware of Nixon's 1967 article and the Nixon presidency's interest in engaging China, saw that it was in China's interest to to have an opening to the United States as a counterweight to this military and political pressure from the Soviet Union. Upon taking the, the oath of office in January of 1969, um, in the midst of the Vietnam War, what was chief on the president's agenda? Did, did China fit in at this point? China was uh, right at the top of uh, uh, Mr. Nixon's head, President Nixon's head. Indeed, uh, he uh, one of the first things he did in in his first day in office, he called in uh, Henry Kissinger's deputy, uh, then Colonel uh, Al Haig, and told Haig that he wanted some studies undertaken about how to improve relations with China. Well, this was in some ways shocking, <clears throat> even to... Uh, Nixon's new uh, national security team uh, because the Chinese were attacking the United States uh, politically and uh, everyone viewed China as the the bad guy in this Sino-Soviet uh, dispute. Uh, but Nixon again took the initiative in his literally his first day in office to start uh, thinking in a much more operational sense on how uh, to move to try to improve relations with China. And, and what were some of those early signals between the U.S. and, and Chinese uh, governments? Uh, one of the first was uh, President Nixon was in France and uh, met with uh, uh, French President Charles de Gaulle, and he told de Gaulle, this is in 1967, that he was interested in improving relations with China. Uh, Nixon also met with uh, Nikolai Ceausescu, the uh, uh, head of communist Romania, and also told him he wanted to uh, improve relations with China. So in a number of ways, uh, these signals started coming out from uh, from the president. And another uh, source or channel in those co- uh, uh, signaling, in that signaling process, uh, was Pakistan. Indeed, uh, later the Chinese told Nixon that if he wanted secure communication between Washington and Beijing at that point, avoid the, avoid the Romanians because they were so much under the thumb of the Russians that nothing could be done secretly, that the Russians who had penetrated the uh, Romanian political system would, would pick up the signal. So it turned out that Pakistan a non-communist country, but one of China's uh, major uh, friendly countries at that point was the the country that ended up being the most secure channel. Why establish these channels? Why not not just go for the gold directly? Why not uh, try to establish contact with with, uh, Beijing immediately and directly? What's the importance of having these, a channel like Pakistan? Uh, it was partly uh, for security on both sides. The uh, 
the Nixon administration had, like its predecessors, maintained a diplomatic dialogue in Warsaw uh, all during the Cold War because there were repeated uh, violations of Chinese airspace by American aircraft operating in the continent. And uh, so there were ongoing talks in Warsaw to at least uh, manage those areas of potential uh, direct confrontation. But it was, uh, which we say, a fairly overt, open diplomatic uh, context. One never knew who was bugging the, the rooms in which those Warsaw talks were held. Indeed, uh, efforts by uh, the administration to establish uh, direct dealings with the Chinese uh, foreign ministry uh, by having the American diplomat in, uh, in I think it was in, uh, in 19, uh, 1969, directly approached a Chinese diplomat failed. A Chinese diplomat was scared to death of dealing directly with the United States ambassador at that point, because in the context of China's internal politics, the so-called cultural revolution, the United States was seen as the really bad guy, the the big imperialist power that was China's China's enemy. So it turned out that an indirect channel that could be directly controlled by the Chinese leadership uh, was from the Chinese point of view, the most secure way to uh, begin a direct uh, dialogue at the political level. In April 1971, uh, Mao, uh, the leadership of China, shocks President Nixon, shocks the whole world by inviting the U.S. ping pong team who were playing at the World Championships in Tokyo. They invited the, this, the ping pong team to play exhibition matches with the Chinese team. Why did Peking make such a sudden and broad stroke um, to signal the American government that it was ready to open relations? Well, the uh, invitation to the ping pong team in the spring of 71 was really Chairman Mao personally reacting to the signals that, that uh, President Nixon had been putting out about the desire to engage uh, in the relationship. And uh, it was done in a way that uh, was somewhat ambiguous uh, in the sense that it didn't have to lead to uh, the presidential trip in uh, February of 72, but it it said to the American leadership that uh, President Nixon's interest in engaging had been uh, received. But uh, more than that, the public reaction uh, to the ping pong visit was was truly remarkable. It indicated that in the United States there was uh, tremendous interest in uh, moving away from a confrontational relationship with the Chinese. Remember, at that time we were still very heavily involved in the uh, Vietnam War, and uh, so people were really relieved that there was some indication that there could be positive, friendly interaction between uh, China and the United States. But it gave the, paved the way for uh, Dr. Kissinger's secret trip in uh, July of 71 and all that followed. And, and what, were the, what was the purpose of Dr. Kissinger's meetings that July? 
Well, that was uh, done in secret, as you know, uh, because, again, it wasn't fully clear that uh, the two sides had the basis for moving forward. But the uh, secret trip was a way that uh, at the highest level, uh, the Chinese, by the way, had expressed interest in Kissinger himself visiting. uh, And that was, I think, because they wanted someone very close to the president. And uh, the Kissinger talks in early July basically uh, established an understanding that uh, while there were serious problems in the relationship, Taiwan was still a major issue of concern. The primary uh, concern that brought the two sides together was a sense of threat from the Soviet Union. And right from the outset, once uh, Dr. Kissinger indicated that uh, we were prepared to talk about the future of Taiwan, Joe and Lai sort of brushed it aside and said, all right, let's let's really talk about what we're concerned about, which is what they called Soviet hegemony. So the discussions uh, prior to the public announcement uh, that President Nixon made on July 15th, those private discussions uh, clarified that both leaderships uh, had the basis for trying to come together, at least on a limited but very important strategic basis. You've said in the past that uh, U.S.-China rapprochement was an, it was an enormous risk for both Chairman Mao and Premier Cho, as well as President Nixon. Uh, why do you think this is so? Well, the risk was that uh, the political support beyond the top leadership might not be there. Indeed, uh, as it played out, in some ways, the political risk was greater for the Chinese because uh, a month or a little later after uh, the public uh, announcement had been made about um, Henry Kissinger's visit and the prospect of uh, President Nixon visiting at the turn of the year, there was a coup attempt against uh, Chairman Mao in China. The uh, defense minister, Lin Biao, apparently was behind a coup. Um, He got caught. He uh, had to uh, flee the country. His plane crashed in the Soviet Union. Uh, And we were uncertain into the fall of 71 whether there was uh, political stability within China. So that was uh, a real risk. And uh, Chairman Mao did tell President Nixon when uh, the president visited that there had been a group within the leadership opposed opposed to the trip and to the uh, rapprochement. On the American side, one would have to say that one of the brilliant aspects of uh, President Nixon's management of this opening uh, was the fact that it generated very substantial political support. And even within the Republican establishment, where, of course, there was very strong support for Taiwan, Uh, President Nixon convinced the people who might have opposed the trip that it was in America's strategic interest to do this. And more than that, uh, the announcement of the trip, and then in particular the president's trip in February of 72, uh, which carried on the the private discussions among the leadership, in many ways was – a turning point in terms of the use of television, in terms of building public support for a major foreign policy initiative in this country. 
And uh, President Nixon's trip was designed in substantial measure to be uh, a television extravaganza that uh, we supplied uh, satellite television uh, hookups that the Chinese at that point did not have it on their own. Uh, much of the uh, preparation for the president's visit involved wiring up the, the areas around Beijing, the Forbidden City, the Great Wall, so that when the president visited these sites, uh, it would be visible to uh, the American public. So uh, at the time that uh, he would, let's say, be holding a banquet in uh, the Great Hall of the People, in the evening, Americans would be watching it on their television sets at breakfast. So the president's trip, the use of television, really did cement public support in this country for the opening to China. You mentioned the use of television and the July 15th, 1971 announcement um, from studios in Burbank. Uh, what was the, what was the uh, reaction of Moscow upon announcing the China trip? Or the possibility it clearly of threw the Soviet leadership back on their heels and uh, created a situation where they had been stalling, foot-dragging on uh, negotiations with the United States, particularly on arms control issues. Suddenly, uh, they saw the whole political dynamic of the Cold War shift because now China and the United States were beginning to have serious discussions. So almost immediately, well back up one point. It was not fully clear to the foreign policy specialists in this in the United States how how the Soviet Union would react to the China opening. There was some fear that it would uh, create a very hostile negative reaction. But in fact, uh, the initiation of the relationship with China had just the opposite uh, effect. The Soviet leadership immediately uh, tried to engage the Nixon administration. Uh, they wanted to have a, a summit meeting before the, the China meeting, which was uh, put off. Uh, they suddenly indicated a great interest in arms control negotiations that they had been stalling on. And there were efforts uh, through diplomatic channels on the part of uh, Soviet diplomats to try to convince the United States, American uh, diplomats and, and leaders, that the Chinese were really un, unreliable and dangerous to deal with. So from the point of view of the political dynamic of the Cold War at that period, the opening to China was clearly favorable to the United States in bringing the, the Soviets around to uh, dealing with us seriously on arms control and other issues. And that shift played out over the next several years with a series of very positive summit meetings with uh, between President Nixon and uh, Brezhnev and the other Soviet leaders uh, that led to uh, a number of important arms control and other uh, agreements. And what was the reaction of China's allies, namely North Korea and, and Vietnam, and, and also the U.S. allies, uh, namely Japan? Uh, South Korea, the South Vietnamese. How did that? How did that whole dynamic play out in Southeast Asia when the two great powers um, uh, established rapprochement? Well, the Japanese called it the the Nixon shakus, the 
it was one of a series of political decisions that uh, the Japanese and whether there was the North Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, the North Koreans, the ASEAN countries, the Soviet Union, uh, the Nixon initiative, and the trip to China in early 72 uh, really had a profound effect on political dynamics on both sides of the equation. Uh, on the, for the Chinese, it created real strains between uh, Beijing and uh, the Vietnamese, who, of course, we were in the middle of a war with. Uh, real strains with North Korea, uh, where we were in a military confrontation, and it was an enormous complication to Beijing's efforts to uh, sustain uh, working relations with these these two countries. And uh, while it would be hard to say that the China opening uh, had a demonstrable effect ending the Vietnam War earlier, it clearly uh, put the United States in a more favorable position because the fear that we might stumble into a war over Vietnam uh, with China had been substantially eliminated and the Vietnamese were pretty much on their own. And from an American point of view, suddenly the China relationship overshadowed uh, the uh, tremendous uh, cost on this country, the Vietnam War. Uh, for China, again, they had problems dealing with uh, uh, their allies who were shocked and felt that uh, they had been betrayed. Uh, but uh, the Nixon administration did conduct effective diplomacy with Japan, with our other uh, countries in East Asia to convince them that uh, the China opening was good for their interests because they, whether it was Japan or the Philippines, other countries that were uh, our allies and friends, they didn't want to see a U.S.-China war. They didn't benefit from a high level of tension between the United States and China. So through effective diplomacy after the president's visit in February of 72, uh, we were able to conduct, I think, effective diplomacy to convince our allies that the opening was to their benefit. At the end of the trip, uh, U.S. and Chinese leaders announced a joint communique, um, appropriately called the Shanghai communique. Uh, what was the Shanghai communique? What did it What did it seek to accomplish? Well, it was a formal declaration that the United States and China shared a shared a fundamental strategic interest, and it was common opposition to what they called, in a kind of code word, hegemony, which really meant a threat from the Soviet Union. At the same time, the communique listed a whole range of uh, areas where the United States and China did share uh, serious differences. So it was an unusual document in the sense that it wasn't sort of diplomatic doublespeak and uh, papering over differences. It was unique because at one and the same time, it said, yes, there are some very serious areas of disagreement, but we do share this fundamental strategic concern about uh, hegemony, about the Soviet threat. So as you look back on uh, 20th century diplomacy, the Nixon opening and the Shanghai communique really have to be seen as uh, 
probably the most positive diplomatic uh, initiative in the, the way that it changed the dynamic of international relations, of course, in the context of the Cold War. Right. I mean, the world's very different now. I mean, 40 years, 45 years on, the world is very different. It, it is the Shanghai communique and uh, the framework established in Reprochement. Is it still playing playing itself out today? Well, it's uh, it's got a very uh, complex uh, play out. Uh, it certainly was a, a positive development in bringing the Cold War to a uh, a positive end and much to the benefit of the United States. It did establish for uh, the remainder of the period that the Soviet Union persisted, that is till uh, the late 1991 period, the basis for uh, a positive uh, relationship with China to some degree uh, in the security area. At the same time, you have to say that it uh, set in motion in China some very serious uh, uh, developments that had both positive and negative effects. On the positive side, the opening laid the basis uh, for Deng Xiaoping in uh, 1989 to initiate the economic takeoff uh, that has now brought China three decades later to the point of being the second largest economy in the world, and, and China has gone through these decades uh, growing at a faster pace than anyone has seen in history, and that certainly from the point of view of the Chinese people, and uh, in terms of global economics, has had a positive uh, relationship. On the other hand, the opening of the United States was uh, somewhat destabilizing within China. Uh, not too long after President Nixon left China in 72, there was a political pushback within China from the so-called Gang of Four, that is Mao's own wife, other leaders, uh, who were not happy with uh, what Chairman Mao had initiated. And uh, it was touch and go to the point uh, that when Chairman Mao died in 1976, there was uh, almost a coup attempt by the so-called Gang of Four to uh, take over the leadership. But Deng Xiaoping and other party leaders smartly moved against the Gang of Four. Uh, Mao's wife and the others were arrested, and uh, the situation did stabilize and created a circumstance where, again, Deng Xiaoping could initiate uh, his economic reform plan, plan, Deng Xiaoping in 1979, basically overthrew all of Chairman Mao's ideology and his approach to politics and set in motion uh, a development plan based on opening to the world and uh, domestic reforms. And for the, for the 1980s, you had a very positive economic takeoff and engagement of China with uh, the rest of the world. But that, again, had a destabilizing effect within China. And so a decade after Deng Xiaoping initiated this takeoff, you had demonstrations at Tiananmen in uh, June of uh, 1989 that led to uh, tremendous public pressure on the Chinese Communist Party leadership, which uh, the leaders 
had to suppress with uh, military force. And uh, that had the regretful effect of uh, souring China's relations with the United States and much of the rest of the world who imposed sanctions, economic sanctions on on China for having used force to suppress the student demonstrations of uh, June of 1989. And that uh, has been a negative factor ever since in U.S. relations with China. Uh, our relationship has been troubled uh, on the American side because of uh, growing authoritarianism and uh, political suppression in China. And within China, uh, the leadership has looked at the United States as uh, troubling, if not unfriendly, because of our reaction to their violent suppression of the student movement and uh, sanctions and other op opposition to their authoritarian leadership. So today, uh, four more decades after the Nixon trip, uh, we have a troubled and uh, I would say a double-sided double relationship with China. On the one hand, we share many important common interests with China in stabilizing the global economy, uh, dealing with terrorism, uh, efforts to deal with uh, pollution and the effects of climate change. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the new fifth-generation leadership within China under Xi Jinping uh, for complicated reasons that uh, uh, relate to his effort to stabilize their internal politics, has adopted a strong nationalistic posture, has taken certain initiatives that are producing confrontation with uh, within the East Asian region, the building of these islands, militarizing and claiming ownership of uh, the South China Sea which has produced uh, a real confrontation with uh, America's allies, with uh, Japan in the East China Sea, with the Philippines, with the ASEAN countries in the South China Sea. And so we're seeing a repolarization of East Asia between China, basically without too many allies, and the United States and its allies and friends on the other side. So it's a troubled troubled relationship today, and uh, one that uh, is going to require a lot of very uh, skillful and uh, far-sighted political management on both sides to prevent uh, a return to a confrontational relationship between the U.S. and China. Ambassador Solomon, thank you so much for your time. Well, I hope this is helpful. appreciate your interest, and uh, if there's anything more we should cover, give me a call. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis, signing off.